Welcome, everyone. You're in for a brand new episode of HCI's special edition podcast series, Nine to Thrive Deep Dive, in this next hour, where we're going to spend some time discussing a critical problem and some notable trends in strategic HR. My name is Aubrey Witte, and I'm thrilled to be your host today. I encourage you to grab your cup of coffee or tea or a caffeinated beverage of choice and put on your thinking caps as we venture into the land of the employee experience. We'll be talking with best-selling author, futurist, and keynote speaker on the future of work, Jacob Morgan. Jacob's new book will be published and released on March 27th, and it is titled The Employee Experience Advantage, How to Win the War for Talent by Giving Employees the Tools They Need, the Workspaces They Want, and a Culture They Can Celebrate. So thank you so much for joining us, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, okay, I, I want to kick off with just this random question because I think that a lot of people get confused over the term futurist or they think, is everyone a futurist? Am I a futurist? Can you kind of walk me through what you think a futurist is and how that role, um, how you serve that role? Sure. So, uh, yeah, of course, it's a very common question a lot of people ask. Uh, futurist was one of those things that um, I started getting introduced as over the past few years not something I ever decided to call myself or, or, or label myself, but uh, after speaking at a bunch of conferences, that kind of moniker just got added by the, the conference organizers, and they would say, oh, yeah, teachers, Jacob Morgan. And it makes sense, because a lot of what I do is help organizations avoid getting surprised by what the future is going to bring. So it's a lot of, um, you know, horizon scanning, looking at trends that are coming our way. It's a lot of uh, trying to do some kind of forecasting, looking at what the future of a particular industry might look like, developing various scenarios around that. So it's applying these frameworks that a lot of futurists have used for many, many years um, to, to the work that I do. And so uh, I basically spent a lot of time studying what these various frameworks and models are. And when I do client engagements, I apply a lot of these things to that type of work that I do or to the content that I create. So mm-hmm. basically, I always help um, or I always tell organizations that my job isn't to predict the future. It's to help you and not get surprised by what the future might bring. Great. Thank you for the explanation. And I think that one of the things that you've talked a lot about and we'll get into here. Um, as you look to the future, is this term and this concept of the employee experience. So I'm curious if you can give us some background on on what we actually mean by this term and how it might be different from some of those other, some of that other jargon that's floating around out there that we use a lot in strategic talent management, like employee engagement, employment branding, et cetera. So what is the employee experience? So this is something that, uh, of course, we hear a lot about today, and there's a lot of um, I guess misunderstanding between engagement, experience, those things are used um, back and forth, they're, they're, they're mingled together, and they're definitely not the same thing. So basically what, what has happened over the past few decades is we have never been spending more money and time and resources on employee engagement. In fact, uh, in, investment in that category is pretty much at an all-time high, yet scores around the world for organizations are pretty much at an all-time low. So you have this kind of a paradox. How is it that we've never spent more money on employee engagement, yet the employee engagement scores have also either never been lower or have barely moved? And whether this was the intended effect of employee engagement, basically what has happened is employee engagement in most organizations is seen as a short-term fix, as an adrenaline shot, as kind of like a little boost. And what happens is employees start working in an organization. And when you start working for any company, 
you're already engaged, right? I mean, you're excited. You want to make an impact. You want to make a difference. Nobody starts off working at a company on day one thinking, oh, my God, this place sucks. Uh, like, that doesn't happen. Um, people start off genuinely excited and wanting to be there and, and, and get their jobs done. And something happens over time where uh, our engagement starts to decline. Our satisfaction starts to decline. And usually at that point, you know, a year in, six months in, the organization does an employee engagement survey. And they look at it and they say, oh, my God, look at our scores. We, we are like a 60. Uh, and then they take those scores and they say, hey, HR, uh, we got a 60. Uh, we want to be like a 85. Get us to an 85. And so HR is left thinking, okay, well, how do I get this number from a 60 to an 85? Well, uh, why don't we introduce free food on Wednesdays and we'll let people work from home on Fridays. And then they'll introduce something. The engagement scores will quickly go back up. And then over time, they will go back down. And when they go back down, again, HR is thinking, well, how do we boost our employee engagement scores again? And you have this kind of a wave that goes up and down and up and down. And the problem with that is that it never really crosses a certain threshold. So you're not really um, doing anything. You're just kind of manipulating your, your workforce and manipulating these scores. I, I talked to the HR officer at a large global organization, and she said that the, if she wanted to get a 10-point boost on her employee engagement scores, she had a very quick and easy way to do it. She would uh, measure employee engagement the first time on a cloudy, rainy day, and the next time she would measure it, uh, on a sunny, beautiful day. Boom, instant 10-point boost in employee engagement scores. So that just goes to show um, that there's a lot of stuff that we can do to kind of manipulate and change these scores. And uh, this is, I think, a big problem for organizations, right, because um, they really look at employee engagement as kind of a Band-Aid. And so, again, whether this is the intended consequence of employee engagement or not, this is what it has become inside of our organizations. Mm -hmm. Employee experience, on the other hand, is the actual redesign of your company to put people first. So this is where organizations like T-Mobile and Cisco and LinkedIn have actually done uh, hackathons where they break their HR functions and they rebuild them from the ground up based on for the year that we're living in and the feedback that employees are providing. Um, that's more than just giving people free food, giving people, um, you know, the kind of perks that they want. Um, so that's kind of the difference, right? It's breaking something and rebuilding it from scratch versus thinking about it in terms of a type of a perk. Uh, the other thing I'll say about this is that employee engagement isn't uh, the cause of something. Em employee engagement is the effect. Um, so, and, and that's where we've been stuck. We've been stuck measuring the effect of something without understanding the cause. So basically the way this works is the cause is employee experience, the effect is an engaged workforce, and the outcome are uh, business results or, or business improvement. So that's kind of the way that we need to think about it. And we've just been stuck on this middle piece of employee engagement, uh, and it hasn't really gotten us very far. So what is employee experience? For me, um, and, and what I have found from doing all this research, is the typical answer for what is employee experience you'll hear is it's a relationship between an employee and the company. And that doesn't mean anything, right? That's kind of a, like, you know, anybody could say that. Right. It's just like in customer experience, they say customer experience is a relationship between a customer and a company. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, but that doesn't really mean anything. So, um, 
the employee experience, the way I like to think about it, is an intersection of two areas. So you have employees that work at your company, and they have a certain set of expectations, needs, wants, desires. And then on the right side, you have the organization that's constantly trying to do things based on what those employees, or ideally is doing things based on uh, what those employees want. The intersection between the employee needs and expectations and wants and what the organization is able to design and create is good employee experiences. So ideally, you want the organization to actually do things that the employees genuinely care about and value. And that overlap is, is employee experience. So I know I've been talking for a few minutes, so let me stop there um, and, and see if you have any questions. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense that we're saying that this is an intersection between what is good for the people and good for the company, right? And it's where those two things or where those crosshairs meet, if you will. I thought one of the things that you said that really struck me, especially about employee engagement, um, and that story about just measuring employee engagement on a rainy day versus measuring it on a sunny day. Um, number one, there everything in the world can be um, manipulated, right, and can show you kind of what you want to hear, if depending on what you're looking at. But also, it kind of reflects to me a big movement in the marketplace in general, where there has been such an emphasis on short-term gains over long-term losses. And that seems to have kind of trickled into this territory of people and employees, right? That it's no longer really about looking at that long term and looking at the employee experience as kind of this cohesive whole of how do employees kind of interact with their organizations and how do organizations interact with their employees. But on this focus of saying, well, we can only look, you know, three months into the future, right? Or we need to gain points or, or raise our employee engagement scores, within the next quarter. So it's interesting to sort of see that yeah, and, happen. Yeah. Yeah, and basically, you know, employee engagement has become this way to kind of justify the existence of HR. Another big issue with employee engagement is most of the surveys and most of the methodologies out there only measure downwards. So mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that most employee engagement scores, you can either be uh, engaged, uh, you know, disengaged, or actively disengaged. And basically what that means, the way that I look at it, an engaged employee should be an average employee. Like, an an engaged employee is somebody that has a connection with the company, somebody that wants to do a good job, Mm -hmm. somebody that genuinely wants to be there. Like, that should be an average employee. Like, you don't want people that don't want to be there. So um, an engaged employee, in my mind, is average. Um, A a disengaged employee is terrible. And uh, a a very disengaged employee is very terrible. So basically, if you look at most methodologies that look at employee engagement, you can either have average employees, terrible employees, or very terrible employees. And this whole framework creates a, a culture and a workforce of mediocrity, right? Why can't we measure upwards from employee engagement? What about the people that are so passionate about working there that they constantly refer others? They act as a brand evangelists and the champions of the organization. They constantly go above and beyond of what's expected of them at work. Mm-hmm. Like, what about those people? Most employee engagement surveys and most methodologies don't account for those kind of superstar people. And because of that, we only have this, these three levels, which is average or below average. And, and, and those are the types of companies that we end up creating. And so I think this whole concept for engagement needs to be um, thought of uh, a little bit. And when I was first writing this book, uh, my initial 
thinking was, okay, well, employee experience has to replace employee engagement, but that's not correct. Um, instead, as I mentioned earlier, it's best to think about it as you redesign your company to put people to the middle. As a result of that, you will get an engaged workforce, and because you have an engaged workforce that genuinely wants to be there, you will achieve all of these business outcomes. Mm-hmm. So if we think about it in those three layers, I think it makes much more sense. Yes, I would agree with you. And I think that also treating employee um, engagement as an outcome is a huge miss for a lot of organizations that they think it's just sort of a means to an end. And to your point, there are lots of perks, but we don't want to confuse perks with someone who actually wants to be doing the work that they're doing and, and working with the organization that they're at. So it's, it's an important distinction, I think, that maybe has been lost in the shuffle, if you will, as all of these things have sort of come to the forefront in the last few years. I mean, in fact, a lot of organizations uh, around the world have even stopped measuring employee engagement, right? I mean, uh, you look at a company like uh, Accenture, for example, or a company mm-hmm. like Cisco, they no longer do these big annual employee engagement surveys because they realize they're pointless. Um, by the time you collect all of the data, by the time you analyze it and distribute it and give it to the teams and give them some, some, some sort of like actionable advice to do, mm-hmm. months have gone by. The teams no longer look the same way. They're working on different projects. New policies have been implemented. Um, so in most companies, I look at employee engagement similar as we look at the annual employee review. Right? Why is it that most organizations out there are saying, oh, yeah, the annual employee review is terrible? Uh, but at the same time, they look at these annual employee engagements. Right? It's the same thing, right? It's, it's not an effective way to get a pulse of what's going on at your company. So there are far more effective um, things that organizations can do besides uh, looking at things this way. Yes, I, absolutely. And I also think that that is part of the reason why we've seen such a push in the last two years, especially with things like pulse surveys, right, where you can actually kind of fill out um, a questionnaire on the spot and get immediate results back that kind of kind of look at the organization as a whole. But again, the purpose of that is to show a point in time, not to show that, hey, in all of 2016, you had X engagement scores, because at the end of the day, that's really a meaningless metric when you're looking to the past, number one, and number two, you can't attribute it to concrete things that are actually happening in the workforce. And it's just a, a feeling that someone had on a beautiful sunny day, right? Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, I want to kind of switch back to the employee experience and that intersection between what employees are looking for and what they want out of their work and what organizations can really provide and what organizations need in order to be successful and find that sweet spot in between. Um, You kind of talked about this a little bit already, but why is this topic important to you from a personal perspective? Um, What kind of drives the interest that you have in it? So it all started from bad jobs that I've had working for other people. Um, so <laughs> uh, basically what happened is, uh, and this is a story that I, I share in a lot of the keynotes that I do as well. Um, after I graduated college, I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. and I graduated with a dual BA in business management, economics, and psychology. I graduated with honors. And, you know, I did well. I worked very, very hard in school to, to double major and get these de- degrees. And I was super excited to join the, uh, the corporate world, the business world. And my first job out of college, uh, I was stuck driving an hour and a half to and from work each way every day. So three hours a day driving to and from work. That's a lot of time now, to think. I took this job. Because, oh, yeah, it was, it was a nightmare. Uh, and this was in L.A. on the 101 freeway, the 405. It was just killer. Um, and so I, I took this job because when I interviewed at the company, I was promised that I was going to be doing some exciting work, that I would be 
uh, interviewing business leaders and entrepreneurs. I would be traveling. I would be meeting with executives. I'd be working on all these cool projects. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm out of college. I'm young. I, I should really take this opportunity, even though I'm going to be stuck doing a lot of driving. So I took the job. And a um, few months in, the only kind of work that I was doing was data entry and cold calling and, and PowerPoint presentations. And the key pivotal moment for me was when an executive at the company came out of his beautiful corner office with 10 bucks in his hand, uh, gave it to me and said, I'm late for a meeting, go run and get me a cup of coffee and get yourself a latte as well. And that was sort of the last, um, or one of the key pivotal moments in my life when I thought, all right, um, I worked my ass off in school, right? I mean, I, I worked really, really hard. Uh, any idiot can go get this guy a cup of coffee. Like, mm-hmm. anybody can do the work doing. So I felt um, very betrayed. I felt lied to. And that was one of the key moments in my life where I thought, okay, it can't be like this forever. Um, And all of my friends had the same experiences. They all went to go work for companies where it was sort of like, ascend the corporate ranks and pay your dues. And, you know, you have to be treated like crap for five years before anything good can happen. Mm -hmm. But I thought, this makes absolutely no sense. Like, why, why is it that so many people around the world have these types of experiences where they feel like they're working for organizations that either don't care about them or don't treat them well? And so, although I had a, a few jobs after that, uh, that was sort of the seed that was planted in my head that made me think differently about the future of work and employee experience. And at that time, those terms didn't exist. Nobody was talking about those things. So I didn't really know what what to call it or what to think about. I just knew in my mind that the way that we think about work doesn't make sense and something's going to have to change. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what stuck with me uh, for the past uh, almost decade. Awesome. Well, and I think that the that also speaks to the fact that, you know, a lot of these terms and a lot of what we're talking about today really comes from a place of truth for a lot of individuals Um, and especially a lot of individuals that are younger in their careers all the way to middle management where we've seen and experienced some of these things firsthand and to your point just felt that that something's off right it's not right that I love the pay your dues for five years. That's the longest dues anyone's ever paid, right? College is four years, but you've got to work in a place for five years to get some respect. So it's it's a valid point. And when you talk about really investing in this employee experience, um, Oftentimes, the question that gets raised, especially by senior leaders at organizations, is the, the what's in it for the organization? What's in it for me? Um, so what have you found in your research when you look into the return on investment on actually, to your point, rebuilding HR from scratch and rebuilding it around people as being sort of that common core? Um, what are some of the benefits that organizations and leaders can really expect to see if they actually invest in this? So when we think about employee experience, there were three buckets that that I looked at, culture, technology, and physical space. So that's essentially what shapes every single employee experience for every employee at every company around the world. Uh, I looked at ten variables for culture, five uh, or four variables for the physical space, and three for technology. And basically the way that this all came about is I interviewed 150 senior executives at global companies. These were... Uh, folks like the chief people officers at LinkedIn and Cisco and Marriott, uh, chief technology officers at a company like Xerox, CIOs, um, uh, chief innovation officers at companies like EY, mm-hmm. basically top executives at these global companies. 
And from those interviews, that's where this kind of this idea of three buckets came into play, culture, technology, and physical space. Um, once I had that, the next thing was to figure out, well, what do employees care about most in these three areas? And that's where I went through probably 160-ish uh, articles, case studies, research reports from uh, all sorts of organizations to see what do employees care about most when it comes to these three areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I identified those, I created a series of questions that then can be used to analyze any company. I then hired a team of five researchers and two uh, data scientists, and we looked at 252 companies around the world, uh, Fortune 100 companies, the Fortune 100 best places to work, I looked at a bunch of glass door uh, best places to work, and then just some companies that I was personally interested in. And we looked at publicly available data, Glassdoor data, and we scored and linked these 252 companies based on these 17 questions that I developed. And so what we found is that out of the 252 companies, only 15 of them, that's only 6% of them, do an awesome job when it comes to culture, technology, and physical space. So it's a very small number. Now, from these 252 companies, there were several categories of companies that were created. There were nine categories in total. Uh, the, the highest category that I just mentioned, those were the experiential organizations. The lowest category was inexperienced companies. Those were the ones that did a poor job at all of these three buckets. Okay. Uh, and then there were, of course, a couple of different categories in between the very top and the very worst. And so I took these very top companies, and I decided to look at a couple of different layers when it comes to ROI. Uh, the first was anecdotal data. So the anecdotal data was essentially, do these executives that are running these companies see some sort of business impact? And they would all say, yes, we see improved productivity, we see improved performance, and I said, okay, wonderful. Uh, then the next layer was to compare, um, do the companies that offer these top employee experiences, these experiential companies, do they also appear on other best-of lists? So, for example, best places to work lists, higher customer satisfaction lists, most innovative companies lists. So those are various different types of awarded uh, other lists that exist. Mm-hmm. And I found that the companies that have the best employee experience also appear on these lists far more frequently than any other type of company. Two times often, five times often, four times often, depending on the list that we're looking at. Uh, and then I went one layer deeper and I started to look at financial data. And I wanted to know, do these top companies that invest in employee experience have some sort of a financial edge over the other organizations? And there too, we saw uh, a lot of differences. So. Uh, the companies that invest in employee experience that do an awesome job versus those that don't, uh, they have a higher profit per employee, higher revenue per employee, higher average profit, higher average revenue. Um, they have higher employee growth, lower employee turnover, and they also have a smaller workforce. So not only do these companies average are pretty smaller, but they are doing more, so they're more productive. Um, so, and then I looked at this in terms of one other level. Uh, the first level of ROI I looked at was stock price performance. In other words, since 2012, if you had $1,000 to invest and you invested it into these top 15 companies, or if you invested it into the Fortune 100 best places to work, mm-hmm. or Glassdoor, 
or the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 or any of these other categories that I created, how would this, compare, how would this um, return look over uh, the last four or five years? And without fail, the top companies in employee experience outperformed everybody else, including Glassdoor Best Places to Work and the Fortune 100 Best Places to Work. So wow. this, to me, was kind of like the four-layer ROI proof. Anecdotal data, uh, the list comparison data, financial data, and stock price performance data. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is that when people read the book and when they see the data, there should be no question in anyone's mind that investing in the experience of your people in these three buckets um, does provide a significant and real return on investment. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I think that you know, doing the, your due diligence and actually finding out those metrics and those influencers is key. I think that a lot of organizations and a lot of leaders, what they sometimes suffer from, though, is well, when are we going to see this return? You know, when is it actually going to happen for us? Is this an instantaneous thing? Can you speak to some of the challenges that you get when you talk to people about this is really why it's worth your time to invest in the employee experience? Yeah. Um, I mean, you're right. There, there are lots of challenges, right? There are all sorts of things that people are trying to think about. And, and so for me, the, the challenges are not – I wouldn't say that they're unique to investing in employee experience versus, you know, investing in other types of things, right? The, the, the biggest challenge, I think, for organizations when it comes to any type of change is, well, things have been going well, why bother? Uh, or we are profitable, why bother? Um, we're in an industry that has no competition, why bother? And so the, the biggest challenge for most companies is um, drilling that, that mental shift into their mind that, just because they have been doing things for the last 10, 20, 50, 100 years doesn't mean that that's what the future is going to look like. And so helping organizations understand that the world of work is changing is something that is always challenging. Although, we need to become a little bit better, right, because you see it on uh, media, you see it in publications, you see it everywhere that the workforce is changing. Mm-hmm. And more data is starting to come out, more research is starting to come out. So I think that um, employers around the world are starting to figure out that, okay, well, we have to do things a little bit differently. And so I'd like to think that that mentality of um, understanding why this is important is, uh, is, is clicking in the minds of a lot of employers. But the one thing um, that, that perhaps is the most challenging is that you can't, and this is one of the things that you can't teach, you can't invest in, you can't force. If you don't have managers and executives that genuinely care about the people that work there, then all this other stuff matters. And I think that's part of the problem inside of most organizations is that we have a lot of managers and a lot of executives that are like, eh, you know, I'm going to do this. I don't really care about the people that work there, but I'm doing this just because, like, we have to do it and because it's going to give us some kind of an ROI. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that never works because when you don't have people in positions of authority or power that genuinely care about their people, um, the efforts just don't go to those lengths that they need to go. So, for example, you look at most organizations today, right? I mean, everyone has a diversity and inclusion program. Everyone's got a management training program. Everyone's got, you know, all sorts of programs that you can think of. Like, the 17 variables that I look at in the book, they're not unique. Like, there's no secret. Uh, you know, everybody has these types of training programs. But the organizations that genuinely care about their people take it to the next level. So, for example... 
Um, we always hear about management training, right? We want to teach people to become good managers and leaders. Mm-hmm. But how many organizations out there like Pandora uh, actually have training around empathy? How many of them have training around emotional intelligence? Not many. Uh, we hear about diversity and inclusion. Everyone's got some kind of initiatives in there. But how many companies out there like Sodexo actually make diversity and inclusion a part of the bonus package that an executive gets? Like, that's the difference between just doing something and seeing this as a checklist versus I actually care about my people, and because I care about my people, I'm going to take it to the next level to make sure that this actually happens. Mm-hmm. And, and that's another big problem that we see with engagement, too, is we, we get these checklists of things, and then organizations are sort of being tasked to execute on these checklists. And that never works, right? I mean, if you're in a relationship with somebody, with a spouse, a significant other, and I said, here's the key to a perfect relationship. Follow this checklist, right? Give them presents on this day. Uh, give them six I love yous. You know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It, it wouldn't work because the other person would know that you're going through a checklist and you're, you're just doing it. Um, When you genuinely care about somebody, that shows versus, like, I'm just going through a checklist. And imagine that you are living with somebody and you're married to somebody and you know that all they're doing is following a checklist to try to make you happy. Like, that would not be a good relationship. And so why do we assume that inside of our companies that's okay? Like, employees know that organizations around the world are just following a checklist. They don't care. Um, you know, managers are, are told, have one-on-one conversations with your employees. And so a manager will sit across from their employee, hey, how's it going? You know, what are you working on? Yada, yada, Okay, cool. Well, glad we spoke. You know, I'm always here. Open door policy. If you need me, come talk to me. You know, that, that is, is useless. Um, if anything, that does more harm than good because the employee can feel and tell that that is not a genuine conversation. That is not a manager that you can trust, not a manager that you can uh, open up to. So... This concept of genuinely having people in positions of power that care is a challenge. So uh, I think that's a big area that we're going to need to focus on. Yeah, I, I think that that's well said. And I think that that need for authenticity, and it's almost like a subconscious need, right? Because if you're having those surface level conversations with someone, whether or not you know it, you're not, you don't really trust them, right? That's not a, a place where you go and you feel like, oh, I can really have a conversation with this person and they'll hear me out and they'll support me if they don't have the time to get to know me as a human being and as a person, which again, hearkening back to that human as the core of HR and the core of the employee experience, um, then it makes it really hard to build anything from that relationship and makes it really hard to go anywhere after that. So I think that that need for authenticity, though, is, is, is great. And actually, one of my other questions is, you know, what can leaders do to focus on building this employee experience and, and where should they begin? Let's say that, you know, dismantling an entire HR program is a little um, over the top for them or maybe impossible given their situation, but they care a lot about making this employee experience work. Um, where do you think they should begin? Is it with in this place of authenticity and, and building trust? Well, unfortunately, um Authenticity and caring is very hard to just create, right? I mean, if you have managers and executives in an organization that genuinely don't care about their people, and then all of a sudden you go to them and say, okay, you got to start caring about your people. Um, I don't think that's a mental shift that a lot of people can make. It's one of those things, you either love somebody or you don't. You either want to be in a relationship or you don't. 
there's not a lot of middle ground of, well, yeah, I kind of care about them, but not really. So that's the first thing, right, is we need to make sure that the people that are going to be able to deliver on these things are the ones that actually care about the people. Like, they, they want to genuinely have them succeed. In fact, I think a measure of a successful manager should be, are you able to help make people more successful than you are? If you can help make people more successful than you are, then that means you genuinely care about them and you want them to do well. If you are put in a position where you are stunting other people's growth because you're scared of them overtaking you and, and, and becoming more senior than you, that's not caring about them. And in that kind of environment, you can tell why employee experience will just fail altogether. Mm-hmm. So the first moment that we need to think of is, uh, do we have this kind of overall environment where we have the right managers and executives in place? That's definitely the, the first area we need to think of. Another area we need to look at is um, challenging conventional wisdom around various workplace practices. So just basically ask questions. Go around and ask all sorts of questions inside of your company. Do we need this? Do we need that? Should we be working like this? Is there a better way to do that? This policy doesn't make sense. Just go around and ask all sorts of questions that you think um, are either interesting or provocative or um, might cause you to think differently about something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another area that needs to happen is organizations have to develop uh, the ears of the company. And the ears of the company are essentially what allows the organization as a whole to understand what's going on in the company. Uh, ears are developed through one-on-one conversations between managers and employees. They're delivered or they're created through town halls between executives and employees, through focus groups, through surveys, through real-time feedback via technology platforms. It's basically you need to have, you know, if you're having, again, to use a spouse analogy, if your spouse is talking to you, you're listening, right? Hopefully you're listening. <laughs> and you're, uh, you know, you're understanding what they're saying, and you're kind of digesting that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need the same thing, but on a massive scale, right? So you've got to have those listening ears in place. Uh, and the last foundation, I, I would say, is investing heavily in people analytics and data. Uh, the most successful companies that invest in employee experience have robust data analytics and people analytics functions because we are very much um, in a culture where we're trying to be the next Google. We're trying to copy Netflix. We are trying to um, be something else. And that's not an effective approach. So the most successful companies out there, uh, look at Google, right? Everyone wants to be Google. Google has perhaps the most robust people analytics and data function that I've ever seen. And so the decisions that Google makes around various uh, perks or uh, workforce changes are not done just for the sake of doing them. They are done because they have tons of data in place that makes sense for Google. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Facebook is the same thing. LinkedIn, Cisco, same thing. These companies do things based on data that they are getting from their people. And so if you do not have data on your people, it is very hard for you to make decisions um, that are actually going to make a difference. So building out this people analytics function is absolutely crucial. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last thing I'll say around employee experience is simply because a lot of companies always say, I don't have the budget. I don't have the money that Google has. I don't have the money that Facebook has. Treating people well is free. Um, it, it, I mean, take any example that you want, right? Switching from cubicles to a multi-floor plan. 
Uh, GE just did this in, in Boston. I visited their, their, their space. Mm-hmm. This used to be an environment where everybody sat in an office and everyone had their own kind of private space. They tore all that down and they created a, a open plan, but also a multi-floor plan where you have open spaces, a cafe environment, a lounge, etc. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the cost per square foot per employee decreased when they switched from an office layout to more of a multi-floor layout. Mm-hmm. And they were able to use extra money that they saved by investing in perks, by investing in food and snacks and all these great things. Mm-hmm. And so you walk into the G offices in Boston, and it feels like you're walking into a startup in Silicon Valley. Um, you look at things like diversity and inclusion, having managers that are uh, that treat you uh, or that act like coaches and mentors. Uh, stuff like that doesn't cost anything. So we need to get over this idea of, like, we need to have this crazy budget to treat people well. That's not true. Uh, another misconception about Google is that Google pays for all of the perks that people have. Car washes, dog walks, um, masseuses that come out there, organic grocery delivery. Mm-hmm. Google doesn't actually pay for that stuff. Google provides the convenience, and you as an employee can decide to purchase that if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the relationship that these forward-thinking companies have is that they will build these relationships with local providers of various products and services, and they'll say, look, um, why don't you come over to Google on Wednesday, give us a little bit of a discounted rate because we have a lot of people that are here, and then, uh, you know, if people want, they'll get stuff from you. That's it, right? And then it's up to the employee to decide if they want to pay for something out of their own pocket. So it's about convenience, not about paying for everything that the employees get. So that's a big thing that people um, don't understand is that Google does not pay for all of these perks that the employees get. They just provide that convenience. And again, that too is free for any company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. I can keep talking about this for hours. Yeah, no, I think that this is great. And I also, I like the comment on, on new space. HG actually just moved into to new offices and our headquarters. And so that's been top of mind for us for many months now as we've designed this space is how your physical environment has a real impact on how you work, the conversations that you have, the style of work that you do, and um, and offering those things. And I think that, you know, it, it's tricky sometimes with people because I think that there are always there's always a part of us that likes to be, you know, have an office. And there's also this very antiquated and, and hard to shake stigma around seniority and hierarchy when it comes to what your physical environment looks like. But at the end of the day, the most effective work that can be done is when collaboration is not just something that you have to force to make happen, but something that happens in a very natural way. And we know through you know environmental design and workplace design that we can actually create places where collaboration um, is a natural extension of things and not a, to your point, a check the box type of activity that goes on. So I think it's a, it's a key point for sure. I mean, it's, it's not just a key point, it's special, right? I mean, you, we live in a world that is so competitive and that is changing so quickly that organizations that do not invest in these things will, will just not survive, right? I mean, this isn't just about attracting and retaining top talent. This is about being in the long game, right? You mm-hmm. want to make sure that your organization 
survives, that your organization exists when others will not. Yeah. And you can't just do that by, by willing it into fruition, right? I mean, you need to actually genuinely make these investments. And so I think that this concept of employee experience is not something that you do because you, you feel that is good. It's not something that you do because it's just kind of the right thing to do. I mean, you genuinely have to do this because it's a, it's a strategic business imperative for the survival of your company. Yeah, that's a great point. So another question that I have, I want to kind of turn this idea on its head a little bit um, because I think that there are a lot of things that leaders can invest in and do and that organizations as a whole can focus their efforts on. What do you think the role of employees is, though, as we look to crafting an employee experience, creating these workplaces where you actually have the tools that you need and you have those workplaces and you have that culture and and can contribute to that culture – what is important for employees, individual employees, to do to make these things a reality? I think there are two things. Uh, first is self-awareness, right? I mean, as an employee, yeah. you need to be aware of uh, what your skills are, what your weaknesses are, uh, what you want to do in life. Um, and, you know, granted, when we first get our uh, first few jobs, we, you know, we rarely know what we want to do, and it's fine, you, you know, you take multiple jobs and kind of see what sticks and what doesn't. But at a certain point in time, you have to understand what it is that you want to do, what types of companies you want to work for. Um, you know, you have to kind of get your mind around that. So mm-hmm. good thing is self-awareness. Skills, weaknesses, what do you want to do, where do you want to go, uh, where would you like your life to be in the coming years? Um, that's crucial because that's going to dictate the decisions that you make going forward. Uh, the second thing that we need to do inside of our companies is to speak up. Um, it is to let our voices be heard. Uh, it is to participate in, in various uh, things that our organizations are doing that allow us to speak up and not just stay quiet and sit there and say, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really going to do anything. It's sort of like uh, uh, you look at the elections, right, convincing people to vote, and people say, oh, yes, I'm just one person, I'm not going to make an impact. Mm-hmm. The same sort of mentality permeates our companies where people say, yeah, I'm just one person, I'm not really going to say anything, I'm not going to participate. That is a total, total killer mentality. You need to be self-aware, and you need to speak up inside of your company. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to let your voice be heard, let people know what you care about. And, and look, we've been talking about this for many years, right? And we've always been very kind about this. We've always been sort of like, talk to your manager, show the ROI of it, show the ROI. You know, I think the time for that is done, right? Employees yeah. need to, um, you, you know, start the revolution. You know, scream from the top of your lungs, write articles about it, tell people about it. Like, get out there and, and do as much as you can to let people know what's going on at your company if you like it or you don't like it. Post on Glassdoor. If you do not, if you work for a company that treats you poorly, go on Glassdoor and post it up. Like, tell people what's going on. Uh, Use your voice, use the platforms that are out there because I think collectively, um, a lot of the shit that we're starting to see is happening from employees. It's happening from the people that work at their organizations. So, you know, the hell with being nice anymore. Like, we're done with that. You know, start the fires inside your company. Start the revolution inside your company. Just right. do what you can to make these changes happen. And the, the smart managers out there, when you do this, the smart managers are going to let this happen. They're not going to stand in your way. Uh, you can tell which companies are going to be on that kind of cutting edge and which ones aren't. Because... If you start this kind of a revolution or this kind of a discussion and debate inside your company, 
the, the leading companies will say, you know what, that's a good point. Um, why don't we work together to try to figure out what we can do here? The other companies are going to say, you can't do that. This violates our policies. You don't say that. Don't do that. If you do this again, you're going to be fired. Mm-hmm. Those are the companies that are going to be in trouble, right? Because right. those are the ones that are just going to be resistant to anything that you do. Those are the companies you got to leave. I do not be part of any company that is going to be doing that to you because uh, I, I just, I don't think they're going to be around. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that it really comes down to if you're not a part of the solution, you by inherently become a part of the problem. Um, and also just some empowerment, right? That every employee, especially in today's day and age where we have such power at our fingertips when you think about social media and you think about Glassdoor and Salary.com and all of these places and all of these different avenues and Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, where you can actually transmit this information and share it with the world and distribute your thoughts and um, kind of make your stance, if you will, that to just sit and be quiet and stay silent when things might not be as good as what they can be, um, that you just really you don't enable these movements to happen and that's to your own detriment as an individual and also to an organization's detriment if they're not willing to kind of change their routine and focus more on building this experience around the employee. So, Yeah, and, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is life is short, right? I mean, if, yes. if, you, uh, if you look at uh, sort of the, the world, right, you know, there are over 70 million people on planet Earth the majority of us spend the majority of our lives working. So the majority of people on Earth spend the majority of their time working. And the majority of those people are working for organizations that don't care about them, that don't treat them well. And meanwhile, these people are forced to do work that is not um, something that gives them any type of uh, meaning or drive or passion or desire. That's That's a sad place to live. Right? I mean, that is a very sad place to live. So I think that, um, look, life, life is short, and this is not um, the type of uh, world that we should be working in. These are the types of organizations that we have uh, or should have. And when I think about employee experience and investments that need to be made in these areas, these aren't investments that need to be done because employees just need them. It's because we deserve them, right? Everybody deserves to work this type of an organization, for an experiential organization. Not just 15 companies out of 252, like just 6%. I mean, that's, that's terrible. Right? That is a terrible, terrible, scary number. So we all deserve to work with these types of companies, and I think that we need to just acknowledge that um, uh, we all just need that to happen. Well said. Um, thank you so much for this discussion today, Jacob. I think it's been great to talk about this concept of the employee experience, to hear a little bit more about the research that you've conducted on it. Um, and also a reminder to all of our listeners that Jacob's new book called The Employee Experience Advantage, How to Win the War for Talent by Giving Employees the Tools They Need, the Workspaces They Want, and a Culture They Can Celebrate, um, will be released on March 27th and is available at major retailers, including Amazon. So you should definitely check that out to learn more about his research and some of the, the stories I know, Jacob, that you have about organizations that do this really well and what individuals can do to really propel their own companies forward in this regard so thank you very much for having me you know this is a very important topic so uh, i'm hoping that a lot more discussion will happen around employee experience and uh all this research that i talked about all these rankings all that sort of stuff is going to be released for free to the world as we get a little bit closer to the book launch date 
um, in perhaps late February, early March. So I hope people will use the data um, and, and ask more questions inside their company. And I'm always here as a resource for people that want to get in touch with me. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jacob. Um, thanks to all of our HCI learners for tuning in today. We hope that if you haven't, you'll subscribe to our 9 to Thrive HR podcast series on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Smart Radio, or the YouTube channel HCI Talent for instant access to new episodes. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about what HCI is working on and hearing about new topics and trends in strategic talent management, please visit us at hci.org.